Well, you know, God did not create his people for failure. In fact, he created us to succeed. Doesn't mean we don't fail. Of course, we do at times. That's a part of the process of living in this world. But I think for the follower of Jesus Christ, succeeding in this life is probably not as elusive as we often think it is. In fact, I don't believe that it is nearly as difficult to experience real success in this life as we probably make it out to be. The, the problem is, I think we don't always recognize success when we do experience it because what our culture defines as success is very different from God's definition of success. And so it's not so much a matter of needing to figure out how to be successful that is so elusive because the true measure of success is clearly spelled out in God's word. And so the real issue for many Christians in our society today is not uh, trying to find success, even though we often think that's the problem. The real issue is understanding what true success is. You see, if our definition of success is incorrect, then we can go through life believing that we're failing, even though we're trying very hard to live for God and to be obedient to his word and to honor other people. And yet all the while we're seeing others who are not living that way, maybe not even trying to live that way, who seem to be experiencing all of the success in the world. And so we become discontent and disillusioned and unsettled, sometimes even depressed because we feel like we're failing at life when the very opposite may be true and we don't even realize it because we've been fed a lie. We have been indoctrinated culturally to believe in a definition of success that couldn't be further from the truth. And unfortunately, that lie has crept into some elements of the American church. And so we have all of these Christians today who are unhappy and feel unfulfilled because they think they've failed at life because they're not experiencing Western culture's definition of success. But listen. God's promise of success for his followers has absolutely nothing to do with the American dream and everything to do with the relentless pursuit of Christ and all of the benefits that we experience in this life and the next because of his presence in our lives and the fruit, the spiritual fruit that comes out of living that way, which we just heard about in the video. Okay, I, I personally believe there are many Christians today who are wildly successful followers of Christ, people who really should be teaching and mentoring and discipling others according to how they've lived out their lives for Christ so that others can follow their example, but instead they shrink back from the ministry and from being all that God has called them to be because they're embarrassed by their circumstances which according to secular society standards may look unsuccessful. And I think we've bought into a great lie that as long as we have the right job and the right car and the right house and the perfect marriage and our kids are the best at everything and people like us and we're outgoing and always confident and we always know what to say and what to do in every situation that we are successful people. And the same lie says that if you're not always so popular. Maybe some people even don't like you. you. You don't have the best job. Maybe you've even been fired from a job before. 
maybe you don't have a lot of money and your house isn't all that impressive compared to your friends and it's hard to get ahead and you feel awkward around new people. Sometimes you just don't know what to say or what to do. Sometimes your relationships are difficult and you have to really struggle at times to make them work. Well, then maybe I'm just not that successful, right? And yet, not only are none of those things qualifiers for true success according to Scripture, but in some cases, the very opposite is true. In some cases, producing spiritual fruit in your life for Christ, living a truly successful Christian life will mean not always being popular. In fact, at times, it will mean that some people just won't like you. At times, being successful will mean giving up what you could have for yourself so that you can give more to someone else. Sometimes true success will mean feeling awkward around others because your faith doesn't fit in with your surroundings. And that can cost you, by the way. That can cost you a friendship or a job or an opportunity for advancement because of what you stand for. Sometimes being a success means struggling in your relationships. Why? Because you're not willing to compromise your convictions. Okay, I'm convinced that if we really understood the true measure of success as defined by God's word and we believed it, that we'd have a lot less unsatisfied, unfulfilled Christians and a lot more fruit coming out of the American church than we often find today. This is critically important, not only for us as individuals, but for the church as a whole because people are watching us. They see what we are working for. They see what we've placed our affections on. They see what is driving us, what is motivating us every day. And if our measure of success is exactly the same as the man or woman next to us who has sold their soul in pursuit of the American dream, then it's no wonder we're unsatisfied and unfulfilled. It's no wonder they've no interest in knowing Jesus Christ. But if instead of pursuing the American dream, they saw us pursuing him, they saw us content, satisfied, fulfilled with the success, the spiritual fruit that is coming out of our lives because God is with us. If they saw Christians as people who have no need of the fleeting success that our culture dangles out in front of us, but instead we were people full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, through 23, it's the fruit of the Spirit. If they saw us full of the fruit of the Spirit, regardless of where we may appear on the scale of success based on the American dream, then I'm telling you, we would have people coming to us wanting to know, in fact, demanding to know what our secret of success is because of the contentment and fulfillment that they see in our lives. An orchard of spiritual fruit instead of a really impressive pile of dead branches. And the key to that for every Christian is to understand the true measure of success as defined by God in his word. And so as we continue our sermon series this morning, looking at the, the life and times of Joseph in Egypt, our story today holds some great lessons for us concerning the true measure of success. And it, it foreshadows the lessons that Jesus himself taught about true success in how he lived his own life. And so we're going to take a look 
at all of that today as we pick up the story uh, right where we left off last week at Genesis chapter 39. So if you want to turn there with me in your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen as well. We'll begin reading this morning with the first six verses. In fact, we'll read down through the first half of verse six. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man as he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So after being thrown into a dry cistern, a giant pit in the ground by his own brothers back in chapter 37, Joseph is carted off and sold to a group of traveling Ishmaelites who take him against his will down to Egypt, a country not particularly fond of foreigners, and they sell him to a man named Potiphar, who was no ordinary man, okay? First of all, Potiphar's name literally means devoted to the sun, which was a, a distinctly religious Egyptian name. And when he's described as the captain of the guard in the Hebrew, that is the phrase Sar Tabak, which is literally translated as chief of the butchers or chief of the executioners. So Potiphar was the head of Pharaoh's secret service, the head of his police force, his security force. So this was a very powerful, very religious, very well-connected official in the Egyptian government. And he purchases Joseph from the Ishmaelites to serve as one of his personal slaves. And so at this point, I think it is probably fair to say that most people would not characterize Joseph as a successful man, forcibly stripped of his honored position in his own family and the prized robe that his father had made him, thrown into a hole in the ground by his brothers, sold to traveling traders who in turn sell him to an Egyptian government official into slavery. It would in fact seem that Joseph was an utter failure. That is until we get to verse two. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Verse three, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Verse four, so, and the word so there means because the Lord caused all that he did to succeed, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Verse five, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Verse six, again, the word so, in other words, because the Lord was blessing the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So Joseph goes from a captive sold into slavery to being promoted to working indoors instead of being sent out into the fields to work as was common for foreign slaves. 
Then he becomes his master's personal attendant, a place of honor among the other slaves. And then he's put in charge of his master's entire household over everything but the food he ate. And that phrase, but the food he ate, was a Hebrew idiom. It means everything except his most private affairs. And every single bit of that success was because of what? Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, the Lord was with him and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. You see, every single bit of Joseph's success was God's doing. Because success is not measured by what we do on our own. It is measured by what God does through us. Joseph wasn't a successful man because of his brilliance or his good looks or his hard work, although the narrator, as we'll see, commends all of those attributes to Joseph to be certain, and yet he's also very clear. The reason that Joseph was successful was because God was with him, and he says God caused. He caused all that Joseph did to succeed. Joseph's success wasn't inherent in Joseph. It was inherent in the God who was working in and through Joseph. Now, do we have a role to play in that? We certainly do have a role to play in having success, which we'll talk more about in the next point of our outline. But the point here is we're not the creators of our own success. We are the beneficiaries of his success because success, like every other good thing, is a gift from God which means properly understanding the true measure of success means we must understand that our success comes from God, which also, by the way, requires a humility of the spirit, which was something you'll remember back from chapter 37 that eluded Joseph for a long time. He was a brash, cocky, arrogant, obnoxious young man, and yet it's amazing what being thrown into a dry cistern by your own brothers and then being sold to traveling traders, and then being hauled off to a foreign land where you're sold again, but this time into slavery. It's amazing how that can change a man, right? By the time Joseph ended up in Potiphar's house, he was a completely different person than the brash kid who was bragging about his dreams and lying about his brothers and showing off his special robe every chance he got. And it was only after that And only because of that, that Joseph was able to understand that any success he may attain in this life would come from God and not from himself. You see, Joseph had been profoundly humbled and it changed his life. In fact, if you read chapter 37 and then skip to chapter 39, it's like you're reading about two completely different people. Joseph was a changed man. He was a humbled man by the time he made it to Potiphar's house. And it was only then that Joseph began to experience real success in his life. Why? Because God was causing all that Joseph did to succeed. And the first big success for Joseph, the first real success in his life was his newfound humility. Right When the Apostle Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 that I quoted earlier, he lists gentleness as one of those fruits of the Spirit, which in the ancient Greek is the word prautes. It also means humility. 
Okay, humility is the fruit of the spirit of Christ working in our lives and it is required if we are to understand the true measure of success in this life because it is only out of humility that we will ever be able to recognize and admit that anything and everything good that we may ever accomplish in this life is a result of what he does in and through us. The Lord caused all that Joseph did to succeed in his hands. So as long as we try to measure success by what we can achieve on our own apart from God, I'm telling you, we'll continually end up frustrated with our lives in the end. It can bring temporary satisfaction, but even if we end up making a lot of money and owning lots of wonderful things and holding honored positions, if done by our own strength and effort, none of that will ever truly in the end satisfy us. That's, that's why we see so many rich and famous people who are so broken and depressed that they become addicted to all sorts of destructive behaviors, sometimes even taking their own lives. Because the fruit of this world can never satisfy like the fruit of the Spirit, which means we need to stop measuring success by what we think we can achieve on our own and instead begin measuring our success based on the spiritual fruit that is in our lives. The work that he is doing in us and through us, not the work that we're doing on our own apart from him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. John 5, 19. Okay, Jesus was teaching us that we can do nothing worth anything on our own. It may look good to us. It may seem good to us. It may even gain the approval of others. But in truth, anything that we do apart from Christ is not success. True success comes only by way of his working in and through us. True success is always measured by what God does in us, the, the fruit of his spirit that is evident in our lives. Let's keep reading the story. The second half of verse six through verse 18. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went out into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me and to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So Joseph is faithfully 
serving his master's house when Potiphar's wife comes along and propositions him. But he refuses her because he recognizes where his blessing, his success comes from. It's not from himself. It's not from Potiphar. It's not from Potiphar's wife. It is from God alone. And so Joseph says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But she, she was relentless. She wouldn't give up. And so she spoke to Joseph day after day, but he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. And you know, when, when we read these stories, it seems like everything must have just happened in a few days because we're able to read through them so quickly in a chapter or so. But the truth is, often we're just getting the highlights of these people's lives all compressed into a few chapters. And so just to be sure that we're understanding the amount of pressure that Joseph was actually under here. He was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery, which we read back in chapter 37, verse two. He's 30 years old when Pharaoh promoted him in chapter 41, verse 46. And we know that he was in prison for two years before that, which we read in uh, chapter 41, verse one, which means that Joseph was in Potiphar's house for 11 years. And for as much as that amount of time, he's resisted this woman's advances. Can you imagine how easy it would have been for Joseph to give in just once? This was the wife of one of the most wealthy and most powerful men in all of Egypt. I'm sure she was very beautiful and probably very powerful herself. And for as much as 11 years, she pursued Joseph. In fact, I don't think the temptation could have been any stronger, and there, there may well have even been a desire in Joseph's heart for her. There are some commentators who actually believe that there was based on the ancient texts that we have, but we don't really know that for sure one way or the other. What we do know is that through his trials and triumphs, Joseph had learned to recognize that success is not measured by getting what we want. It is measured by doing what God wants. And so when the temptation finally reaches a fevered pitch and Potiphar's wife waits until no one else is in the house and she goes in after Joseph. In fact, verse 12, when it says she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me, the Hebrew verb for the word caught there actually implies a violent taking. And then when it says Joseph fled and got out of the house in the same verse, that Hebrew verb for fled was used most often in ancient literature to describe men who were retreating from a military battle in order to escape death. So make no mistake, this was an intense encounter. This was a heavy moment. This was spiritual battle when Joseph's only hope of honoring God was to abandon his outer garment and physically run from the house away from this woman who refused to take no for an answer. And because of it, Joseph was about to pay a very heavy price. But he learned that true success wasn't always about getting what he wanted. It's about doing what God wanted. And that was a lesson learned over a long period of time. Listen, Joseph didn't want to lose his favorite robe. Joseph didn't want to be thrown into a pit. Joseph didn't want to be separated from his family. Joseph didn't want to be sold to a group of Ishmaelites. Joseph didn't want to be taken to Egypt. 
Joseph didn't want to become a slave. Joseph didn't want to be pursued by his employer's wife. Joseph didn't want to lose his favored position in Potiphar's house. And surely Joseph didn't want to go to prison. But in every single situation, even though Joseph did not get what he wanted, he did exactly what God wanted him to do. And because of it, Joseph was successful. It's called obedience. And it is required in the life of every believer if we've any hope of experiencing true success in this life, okay? God commands obedience, even if it means not getting what we want. Did you get that? God commands us to be obedient, even if it means not getting what we want. And yet I've actually had people try to convince me in my office that their adulterous affair is okay with God because it feels so right as if our desires somehow automatically qualify as God's will. I'm telling you, that's all backwards. Sometimes we have to actually give up what we want in order to do what God wants if we want to succeed in this life. In Luke 22:42, in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before being crucified, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will. This is Jesus praying. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will. Not what I want, but may I actually do what you want if that happens to be different than what I want. Jesus' will, what he wanted was for the Father to remove the requirement for him to have to be nailed to a cross and hung up until he died in the most horrific way. If you are willing, Father, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, not what I want, but what you want. May that be done. Jesus was teaching us that sometimes we have to give up what we want in order to do what God wants. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, John says this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of him. I've spent my whole life hearing people in church quote the last part of that verse. They love verse 15. We know that he hears us in whatever we ask and then we have the request that we ask of him. We can ask God for anything. He's gonna bless us, give us the desires of our heart. You can't take these things out of context. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Not my will, yours. The key is found in the last part of verse 14, according to his will. That's how he hears us and answers our prayers. At the end of the day, if we want to measure how successful or unsuccessful we've been, then we're going to have to take a long, hard, honest look at how much our lives have been spent obediently pursuing God's will for us, even at the expense of our own desires. And I'll just tell you from firsthand experience, that is not a comfortable exercise. I don't enjoy it at all. But you can spend a lifetime chasing after every single thing that your heart desires and you can work really hard to obtain all of those things and you can still feel empty and unfulfilled. Why? Because there is nothing that you can ever buy 
There is no temporary pleasure in this life. There is no amount of accumulated wealth or power or position or popularity that can ever compare to the fulfillment that we experience, the true success that is realized in our lives when his will is accomplished in us, even when that means having to give up some things that we may really, really want. And Joseph knew it. He knew that no matter how good it might feel to give in to the years of temptation and flattery by this woman, that his sin would ultimately be against his source of success so that no matter the consequences, and by the way, he's about to feel the consequences of resisting this temptation, but he knew that he was still far better off doing what God wanted him to do because only by doing the will of God could he ever have true fulfillment, true success in his life. And I'll just tell you, there are a lot of people, there are a lot of believers who are trying to measure success in their lives based on how much they've been able to achieve their heart's desires, regardless of whether or not it may be God's will for them. But in truth, sometimes it is only by the grace of God that we're not able to achieve everything that we want in this life because some of those things that we desire so much are not his will for us. And getting them would be a disaster, though we may not be able to see that at the time. Well, then what do we do? How do we know? Well, our best course of action is to always follow the example of Christ and simply pray, Father, this is my will. Nevertheless, if that is not your will, then I'll take whatever your will is. Father, even if it means not getting what I want. That's exactly what Joseph was doing here. He was literally running away from what he knew was not God's will for his life. No matter how attractive and tempting and powerful it may be, he ran away from that very desirable offer toward the will of the Father. And the result was God blessed Joseph with a new chariot and a palace of his own and a big pay raise and new friends and a beautiful wife. Wait a minute. Rewind. That's not what happened, at least not yet. No, for doing exactly what God wanted him to do, Potiphar's wife cooks up a good story to make Joseph look like the guilty one, and it lands him in the very last place that Joseph would ever want to be. Let's read verse 19 to the end of the story, the end of the chapter. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph does the right thing and ends up disgraced and living in prison, which seems really unfair because it is. And, and could very easily be viewed by those looking at Joseph's life at this point as another total failure. But as we take a closer look at what has actually happened to Joseph, 
what we find is actually an incredible act of God's grace and mercy and providence at work in his life. In fact, precisely because Joseph was obedient to the will of God, what he is experiencing now, prison, will prove looking forward to be the greatest opportunity for success, good spiritual fruit to be produced in Joseph's life beyond his wildest imagination. But even before all of that happens, we find God working on Joseph's behalf. At a casual reading, verse 19 says that when Potiphar's anger was kindled, it's a, at a natural glance, it's, it's easy to assume that means his anger was kindled against Joseph for what Potiphar's wife has accused Joseph of doing, and so he was thrown into prison. Makes sense. However, that is likely not the case at all. In fact, as we dig a bit deeper, there is quite a bit of evidence to the contrary, okay? First of all, for a foreign slave to rape a high-ranking government official's wife, which is what Potiphar's wife was claiming Joseph did, the sentence would be immediate death on the spot, no questions asked. Not to mention that this particular high-ranking government official's title was chief of the butchers, chief of the executioners. Remember, Potiphar was the head of the secret police. He certainly would not have been squeamish about turning Joseph into a grease spot on the floor at that moment. He was justified under the law, but that's not what happened. Joseph wasn't sentenced to death. He was put in prison. And by the way, not just any prison, he was put into the king's prison, according to verse 20, which was reserved for political prisoners, typically citizens in government positions who were guilty of lesser crimes, as we'll see in the next chapter. This is where Joseph was incarcerated with members of Pharaoh's own court. This is decidedly not the place where foreign slaves guilty of violent crimes against uh, innocent Egyptian women were taken. So if you're going to have to be put into prison, by the way, this was the one you wanted to be in. So Joseph is not executed by the head executioner, as would have been expected, and is instead placed in the country club of prisons in Egypt, which seems inexplicable given the charge against him. And so we dig a little deeper. First of all, Clearly, Potiphar and Joseph couldn't have had a better relationship. Joseph had Potiphar's complete trust for 11 years. He gave Joseph control of everything in his home, save only one thing, his wife. Remember, verse 6 says that Joseph had charge over everything in Potiphar's house but the food he ate, which meant everything except his most private affairs, which was a reference in this case to Potiphar's wife, which we know because Joseph confirms that in verses eight and nine when talking to Potiphar's wife. He says, he's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. Okay, Potiphar has unreservedly trusted all that he has to Joseph for over a decade. You don't do that with someone unless there is a strong and healthy relationship there. So Potiphar's relationship with Joseph couldn't have been better on the flip side. Potiphar's relationship with his wife couldn't have been worse. She's been trying to cheat on him for years, which she wouldn't be doing, obviously, if their relationship was healthy and strong. And besides which... 
Egyptian women had a terrible reputation for immorality in the ancient world. So she may have been cheating with others as well. We don't know. But either way, her behavior wouldn't have been lost on Potiphar. And then as further evidence of their completely dysfunctional relationship, which was devoid of any kind of trust between them, when she calls out to the other servants after Joseph runs away, she blames her husband for the reason she was allegedly raped by Joseph. Verse 14, she called to the men of her house and said to them, see he, that's a reference to Potiphar, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. She doesn't even say his name. So she not only makes herself out to be a victim to all of the servants in the house, but she includes all of the other servants who serve under Joseph as victims along with her. They're all victims now of her husband's bad decision and carelessness to bring Joseph, their horrible boss, into their otherwise happy home, right? And then when her husband does come home, she says to him in verse 17, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. The phrase to laugh at me is translated in the Hebrew literally as to make sport of. So she's openly accusing her husband, both to the other servants in the house and now to his own face, of recklessly and ruthlessly bringing in a foreign slave to use her and the others in the house in whatever way he pleases, to make sport of them. This is highly inflammatory language on the part of Potiphar's wife because she's accusing her husband to everyone who will listen of causing an alleged attack by Joseph. By the way, they may have already uh, resented him, right, because of his close relationship with Potiphar and the fact that he had charge over the entire house, which meant charge over all of them, this foreigner that her husband brought in to be their boss. And so when you put all of this together, it makes verse 19 take on a whole new meaning. As Potiphar is being railed at, by his untrustworthy, cheating, accusing, manipulative wife in front of the servants, disrespectfully accusing him of all of this, and now to his face, and she's doing it all about the one person in the house who Potiphar actually trusts and can count on. Verse 19 says, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, right? Potiphar's anger was kindled all right, but not at Joseph. His anger was kindled at his wife who was completely destroying the one healthy relationship that Potiphar had in his own home, his relationship with Joseph. And furthermore, the accusation by his wife puts Potiphar in an impossible situation in their society and their culture and even with his position in the government because if he believes his wife, then Joseph must surely be executed on the spot. But if he doesn't believe her, he still cannot shame his household by elevating the testimony of a foreign slave, no matter who he is, over his own wife's reputation. That would have been unthinkable at the time. So either way, now Joseph must be punished. And so Potiphar is infuriated at his wife now because of her nonsense. One way or the other, Potiphar is going to lose his right-hand man, the, the best head of household that he's ever had, the one person in his home that he can actually trust. And yet because he knows Joseph is innocent and probably cares a great deal about him, he spares Joseph's life 
by putting him in the most comfortable prison available. And yet that was not without hardship for Joseph, right? Joseph still loses his status. He still loses his job. He still loses his favor with the Egyptians. He still loses his standard of living. Pretty much loses everything but his life. But even still, even still, it is all a part of God's will, God's providential plan for Joseph's life, okay? To the world, this doesn't look like success. This looks like utter failure. But to Joseph, he was learning that success is not measured by being where we want to be. It is measured by being where God wants us to be. Joseph went from head of the house in one of the best houses in Egypt to prison. That was not where Joseph wanted to be, and yet it was exactly where God wanted him to be. As we can clearly see, the Lord was with Joseph, showed him steadfast love, gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. As crazy as it would seem from the outside looking in, Joseph's imprisonment was a significant part of his success story. Just as his captivity with the Ishmaelites brought him one big step closer to the fulfillment of his dreams in chapter 37, this captivity in Egypt is doing the very same thing. You see, if, if Joseph had remained permanently in Potiphar's house, he never would have met Pharaoh's cupbearer in chapter 40, which we'll see, who was also in the king's prison. The same cupbearer who we'll see in chapter 41 is instrumental in Joseph's release from prison and his rise to power in Egypt, which is great, except that for the next two years, Joseph is in prison, and although it may be a better version of prison, it's still prison in ancient Egypt, which was not a fun place to be. So how does he handle it? He willingly produces good fruit for God even when he's not where he wants to be. He knows that God has a plan for his life and that God is with him and leading him each step of the way. And so even though prison looks like a complete failure, Joseph is able to experience success even there in that prison because he understands what the true measure of success is. It is being where God wants us to be even if that's not where we want to be. And that means being willing, willing to be where God wants us to be, even when that's not where we want to be. Remember, Jesus prayed, remove this cup from me. He didn't want to hang on a cross, but he was willing to hang on a cross because he knew that the cross was where the Father wanted him to be. And that cross, the hardest place for a person to ever be, is precisely where Jesus triumphed over death and hell, and the grave. You see, his greatest success was found in the one place where he did not want to be. The truth is, success doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And we have to be humble people. It doesn't come by getting what we want. It comes by doing what God wants. We have to be obedient people. And it doesn't come from being where we want to be. It comes from being where God wants us to be. We have to be willing people. And I'm convinced that if we could really take hold of the true 
measure of success as defined by God's word and live that way, really live our lives that way as humble, obedient, and willing people. I'm convinced that we'd have a lot less unsatisfied, unfulfilled Christians and a lot more who are full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which is the true measure of success. The spiritual fruit that is being produced in our lives every day, regardless of where we are or what he has us doing, because our success comes from him. It's not something that we can mine out of the pleasures of this world, whatever the world has to offer. No, we we cannot produce our own happiness. We cannot produce our own joy, our own peace, our own satisfaction or fulfillment. And honestly, how many more people do we need to witness in our society who have risen to the very pinnacle of the American dream and are still completely miserable people? How much more of that do we really need to see before we begin to understand that whatever we achieve for ourselves and wherever we happen to make it in this life on our own is not the true measure of success. You may not be where you want to be in your life right now. You may not have accomplished all that you thought you would by now. You may not be making the progress that you hoped you'd be making by now, even though you're trying really hard, but that does not mean you've failed. It simply may mean you're using the wrong yardstick to measure success. Because once you understand that any and all success we ever experience in this life comes from God as we humble ourselves before him, and then we obediently do what he wants us to do, even if it isn't exactly what we want to be doing, and then we willingly go wherever he wants us to go, even if that isn't exactly where we want to be, that is when we will experience the greatest success beyond our wildest dreams. As his fruit is produced in our lives and the lives around us are changed because of it. In fact, that is the greatest life you can ever live. It is the greatest life you can ever live. The life lived humbly, obediently, and willingly available to Christ to be who he wants you to be to do what he wants you to do and to go wherever he wants you to go. When you live like that, it's folly to the world. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, it is the true measure of success. Let's pray.